0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Uh, Today, I interviewed Jeffrey Holst, um, who's an investor based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's doing a lot of uh, mid sized multifamily deals, a lot of stuff, you know, 20 to 40 units in that range. And, uh, you know, he's done a lot of smaller investing as well single family homes, smaller multis. And he's investing both locally in Chattanooga and he's also investing up in Detroit, Michigan. And we get into all of that in the show. And uh, this episode's pretty unique in that it's a little bit more, uh, higher level, uh, or more mindset would be the better word than it is tactical real estate investing advice. Um, and we do get into that, uh, in terms of capital raising and things like that. But Jeff's story is just so unique in that, um, he was an attorney getting paid, you know, very well had his own practice. Um, and, and then he just got struck with a, a bout of leukemia and he had to battle that and is still battling that right now. Um, and we, we talk about how that changed his view on one of his just professional career path, how he viewed time and money and his career in general. Um, and it's a really good show. And we talk a lot about um, the mindset that you need uh, one, to be a successful real estate investor, but just to be successful in business as well. So it's a pretty unique show in that respect. He's a he's a really interesting guy and um, it's a great listen. So. If you haven't already, leave a rating and a review for the podcast. It really helps the show grow. Um, and if you actually want to take it a step further, you can take a screenshot of your rating and review before you submit it and send it to multifamilywealth at gmail.com. and um, I'll reply with a copy of my ebook for free. Um, that really just explains how I've uh, built and scaled my real estate business. Um, you know, m- mainly how I found deals and how I've raised capital. So uh, certainly do that. It's a great read. And um, I hope you enjoy this show, and I'll see you guys next week.
1: the Multifamily Wealth Podcast, where we talk about how to start, build, and scale your real estate business. Here is your host, Axel Ragnarson.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Holst. How are you doing, Jeffrey?
1: I'm doing good. How are you today?
0: I'm doing very well. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show.
1: No, I appreciate you having me. It's always good to uh, get a chance to talk to some folks about uh, interesting topics. So,
0: exactly, and and you know, why don't we just jump into it here? I, I've done some research on on your background, and I, I can't wait to hear the story out of your mouth because um, it seems like an interesting one. Uh, so, why don't you start off by sharing your your background? Maybe you know before real estate, or as you were getting into real estate, um, you know what career you were in and, and how you sure. ended up where you are now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could be a long story or a short story. So I'll tell you the, like, the medium version, though, because otherwise it gets a little boring. Um, you know, when you start at birth and just go on, it gets old after a while. But yeah. <laughs> no, listen, I'm a lawyer by trade. So I started out practicing law, went to law school uh, 2006 is when I graduated, uh, 2007 and 8, I uh, had a bankruptcy firm, so I did a lot of bankruptcy law. Um, that was a good time to do bankruptcy laws. You can probably imagine, you know, 2008 was really the um, beginning of the Great Recession. And so there were things like, you know, GM going bankrupt and everything like that. Um, and then uh, in 2008, um, in September of 2008, I was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, and I ended up, um, I actually had, I had pretty much done everything there was to do on my bucket list. You know, I had this like list of things I wanted to accomplish Uh, One of them was start the law firm, uh, hire a couple of attorneys. Um, Another was some travel related stuff. I'd just gotten back from Peru where I'd gone and climbed to the top of Machu Picchu. Um, And I wasn't feeling too well in the mountains. And so when I got home, I... I thought I better check it out. So I went to like a med center. I didn't even have a doctor, you know, I was 30, you know, mm-hmm. I think at get 30. Sometimes people don't, uh, get checked out quite as often as they should. So pro tip there, it's probably important to do your annual physicals cause they would have caught this a lot sooner. But, uh, yeah, I went to the med center. They did some blood work, found out I had leukemia. I ended up in the hospital for, uh, for a while and, um, one of my attorneys that worked for me had quit the day before, or maybe a couple of days before I was diagnosed. Wow. So I went from having myself and one other attorney to zero in my law firm, uh, pretty much overnight. Uh, so I kind of th- say I went from the top of the world, you know, I had been at the top of Machu Picchu looking down over the Incan city. And then like a week later I was in the hospital bed. Um, and I really thought I was dying. Um, my, wow. uh, yeah, my, um, white blood cell count was about 258,000. Um, I, I didn't know much about, uh, white blood cell counts as most people don't, but I know now they're supposed to be between four and 10,000. My cousin had died of leukemia a couple of years earlier and her uh, white blood cell count was like 150 when she died. Jeez. So when I heard 250, I thought I'm on the way out. Um, and that's kind of what the doctors told me too. They didn't say it as much as they were like, Hey, uh, doesn't look good. Uh, we got to try to figure out what's going on. Um, but you know, you could tell, right. That They didn't think it was a good sign. Uh, but I'm very fortunate. I'm, that was 2008. Now we're in 2020. I'm still here. Um, I take uh, daily oral chemotherapy, though. So I'm technically not in remission. I have to deal with it every day. Um, but uh, it's under control. And uh, I'm very fortunate because the type of leukemia I have, which we didn't find out for about a week or so after I was diagnosed. But um, once we found out what type I had, they said, hey, you know, there's this new drug just come out a year or so before that, uh, that can control it and you'd probably be good for a while. And we don't know how long because it's a new drug. Well, yeah. knock on wood, right? I mean, yeah, I'm right. still here. <laughs> uh, my white blood cell counts normal. Uh, the disease is actually undetectable. Um, so I've been just seeing my oncologist once a year and taking a drug every day. Uh, there's a few side effects, but I mean, nothing that's uh, as bad as dying. So we, I, just, yeah, I we, we just deal yeah. with it. So here I am. And I've had a pretty good uh, run at it. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of what happened at the law firm though, uh, you know, I ended up bankrupt. So I, I went from being a bankruptcy attorney to filing personal bankruptcy in about a year, uh, period of time. Uh, the firm had to close down and we had to pay people to cover cases and couldn't take new cases. And we were blowing through about five or $6,000 a week and I, I wow. didn't have any money coming in. Um, It's a lesson learned, Uh, you know, if you're going to plan your life or business, you know, as soon as possible, figure out a way to uh, make sure that money comes in if you're not there. And I hadn't done that. And in retrospect, uh, I probably should have. But that's why I got into real estate. I said, you know, after bankruptcy, I thought, well, I got to do something that's going to bring in money even if I die. Because, I mean, we didn't know. I thought I was going to die and I wanted my wife to still be able to like pay a mortgage and stuff like that. Of course, we didn't have a house because we gave that up in bankruptcy too. Uh, we moved to Tennessee. I was living in Michigan at the time. Uh, and I think um, when you when you are a bankruptcy attorney and you have to go in front of people you work for, with and say, hey, you know, I'm bankrupt, they were super nice about it. But uh, I didn't really want to have to face them directly that much anymore. So I was like, I'm going to take a job that has health insurance. and mm-hmm. uh, And so I did that. I went and worked for a trucking company. And I committed to do that for a couple of years. I ended up doing it for six years. Uh, and that whole time I just took money and converted it to real estate investing. Uh, so when that company ended up selling to a bigger company, I got like six months severance. And I said, I don't want to go back to work. I'm just going to do real estate. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So took about seven years to go from bankrupt to Retired, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I don't really consider it retired because I still do real estate, right? It's, it's just yeah, exactly. my job now. I go on shows. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did actually for three weeks and I got bored. So that's when mm-hmm. I was like, man, I got to do something different. Uh, and that's when I got into multifamily, it's actually after I quit working. I did um, all single families and duplexes, stuff like that before that. So,
0: I mean, that's, that's an unbelievable story. And, you know, like you're saying, knock on wood, man, I, I hope that, that everything continues to stay you know, good just in terms of your treatment and everything like that, because I know that's gotta be a, that's gotta be a scary process. And uh... well,
1: it does, I mean, it is, but it's also a very rewarding thing. So uh, if you have to take a chemotherapy pill every day, you have to remind yourself that, you know, this, this is it, you know, you get one last life and this one chance and you don't know how long you're going to get. So it's very motivating for me uh, it's motivated me to do a lot of great stuff. I mean, I'd already done stuff before. My personality is such that I want to go out and do things right. I want to, mm-hmm. uh, I backpacked around Europe when I was 21. I, you know, I just do stuff like that. Uh, so I always had that already, but once I had this focus of thinking I was going to die, I was like, okay, I need to do this stuff now. Like I always thought at some point I would invest in real estate, but before I got sick, I didn't really do it. You know, I just yeah. read books about real estate and I And if I could do it again, I would have started sooner because then I probably wouldn't have been bankrupt, right? I would have had the income coming in when I couldn't work. I could have hired a professional manager or something and and taken care of it. So
0: yeah. And, and I think you, you made a really good comment there too, about how, you know, well, a lot of times in a real estate business too, whether it's multifamily focused or someone's flipping houses or wholesaling houses or something like that, you know, like the big question is, is is like, can you, can you not go to work so to speak for 30 days? Like, is that something you can do in a lot of, investors think they have a really passive business, but then they're like, I can't step away for 30 days. And oftentimes it's because, you know, maybe you want to go take 30 days off, but also it's because like you're saying, right. If you, if you know, God forbid there's a health issue, how, how is that going to be managed? You know, I mean, it's that, and that's the great thing about multifamily real estate is there's passive income, but running the business operations too, is, you know, just a side comment on, on this whole, on your whole story is, is that it's important to have plans for, for that in place as well. Um, and I'm, a I'm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's a legitimate issue, and and you have to even have plans. I think for key people in your organization. Yep. So if you have uh, a small organization, and maybe you have one employee that does a significant portion of the work for that, uh, what if something happens to them? They get you know they get into a wreck or something, and or they become sick, or or they just quit. You know, I mean, you just can't you can't control the future. Um, and so it is important to have backup plans, create good processes, stuff like that. I know I can take 30 days off. Like I yeah. know this for sure, because, uh, in February I took the, I mean, I was gone from February two to March three It was just 30 days. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I mean, cause it's a leap year. So it literally was 30 days. I went to Africa. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, you know, I just kind of backpacked around Africa and went on safari and saw elephants and, all that kind of fun stuff that I would never have been able to do if I wasn't doing, you know, multifamily real estate. It's even more passive than, than single family stuff, I think but I don't think it's really passive, right? I had to make yeah. a few phone calls while I was in, I had to, my phone still had to work. I, I had to respond to emails and stuff, but um, we have this thing um, at Old Fashioned, we we call it the passivity scale. And we say, you know, on one hand, you might have like a REIT. It's pretty passive, right? I mean, you just give them money and forget about it for the most part. Uh, and then on the other hand, you might have like, you know, building your own property ground up and then managing it yourself. Very unpassive. It's really not a function of like, is this a passive income or not? It's really a function of how passive it is. Um, Because even a REIT, you still have to do some due diligence, right? It's not completely passive. You're going to have to monitor it once in a while. If you invest in somebody's syndication, someone else's real estate deal, you've got to make sure you're picking the right deal. You're going to have to make sure you're reading the reports and staying on top of whoever's managing that. If you're not, you're taking uh, unnecessary risk with your capital. I mean, it's fine if if it's a small percentage of your net worth to just throw something out there and hope it works, but that's more like gambling and less like investing.
0: Yeah. And and I, I like that term that you use, the, the passivity scale, so to speak. And you know, I've referred to it as like a spectrum too. And like you're saying, right, it's, you know, you can invest in a REIT or someone's syndication, but there's still some vetting that's done there all the way to, you know, like you're saying, you know, there's, ground up development or even going and, and buying a, a rental property and managing it yourself. That's not passive, right? I mean, that's why you hate right. property managers is because that's not a passive activity.
1: Yeah, even even having a property manager doesn't make it passive, right? Exactly. You're still going to have to be involved with the manager. I think having a property manager is certainly more passive than managing it yourself, but it's somewhere in the middle. It's, it's not even really on the passive side of that, that spectrum, if you will. Uh, it's, it's probably around the middle. Uh, you know, maybe if you got like a turnkey property from a turnkey provider, uh, that might be closer to passive. But even then, you still have to vet that person. You're still spending time on it. So.
0: Yeah. And that's why, that's why you make great returns in real estate compared to like the stock market or, or other truly, you know, whatever truly passive is defined (laughs) as right. The stock market is probably in that. It's
1: definitely more passive than real estate. And,
0: um, and that's why people put their money in real estate, but, but also it's important to realize that it's, it's not passive even throughout that whole spectrum. Um, Yeah,
1: so I always think of it as a risk-adjusted return. That's how I think about stuff. So Mm -hmm. um, your returns on the stock market, unleveraged versus unleveraged returns in real estate are actually not that far apart. You Mm -hmm. know, leverage helps out with return, um, but it also increases risk. So when you adjust for risk, the returns aren't that much different. But what you can do in real estate that you can't do in the stock market is you can mitigate risk by having more knowledge or being more active. Uh, and you can't do that very much in stocks because, because they're publicly traded and they're highly liquid, uh, and the knowledge is out there. Like the people that have the knowledge, even if you know something about a particular company or about a particular thing, unless it's insider information, which, you know, is illegal. Uh, so unless you have some kind of illegal access to information, you can't out trade the market, but with yep. real estate, you can, because it's not illegal to, to put effort in. It's not illegal to learn something about a local market that someone else doesn't know, and because it's less liquid, uh, there's a bigger barrier to entry, which makes it, you know, a possibility to sort of supercharge your returns. And then if you can add leverage on top of that, which you you, you know you should be doing, um, you get even greater returns.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, just uh, a great way of putting that. Uh, or, or a great way of just saying that the real estate market's inefficient, right? While well, the stock market right. is efficient <laughs> and it's just as black and white as that, right? You can gain an edge in the real estate market in a number of different ways, whether it's knowledge, you know, access to capital, access to deals, you know, whatever, whatever the lever you want to pull that makes it so that you have a, an advantage on the other investors in your marketplace. However, whatever that is, um, it's, it's an, it's an inefficient market. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's, a, that's one of the big reasons why I think people are attracted to real estate is because that is just really the nature of the business. Um, right. So, so let's jump forward maybe a little bit from 2008, 2009 and, and actually get into um, maybe that first deal you did in real estate. And, and, and let's talk about sure. that, You know what it was and how you found it, all that good stuff.
1: Right. So I think it was around 2010, 2011. The first deal I did, so I had a friend from law school that was uh, flipping houses to pay for law school. And uh, we did things like play the rich dad, one, you know, cash flow 101 board mm-hmm. game and stuff. And so, I mean, I really was interested in real estate. So once I got a job and started making money and I, I got some bonuses and stuff, I thought, I'm going to take some of this money and buy some real estate. And of course, that was like 2010, 11 and stuff was on sale everywhere. So we were able to buy this condo for cash. It was like $30,000 uh, and I split it with him. So we each put in $15,000. Uh, and it was a condo that was a foreclosure, bank owned. Uh, the mortgage that had been on it was 100000 So I mean, it was significantly discounted in a really great area, Metro Detroit, but I'm um, like one of the higher end suburbs of Detroit. And it was at a time when Detroit was very out of you know, it was all the podcast hosts were going, Oh, don't invest in Detroit. It's a war zone. It's the worst place in the world. And I was like, that sounds exactly where I want to invest. And it came down to inefficiencies in the market, right? We understood that market being from Michigan and my partner being from Detroit specifically. um, We had knowledge about the market that the rest of the world didn't. People were in panic mode and we were ready to go forward. So we were able to pick up stuff that, you know, frankly, we still own that condo today. It's probably worth a hundred and a quarter. Yeah, that's a great return, even if we didn't cash flow on it right I mean yeah it's mm-hmm. been not eight or nine years but uh that if you take a property for thirty thousand and it's worth four times as much, let's say in eight or nine years that's pretty good right i mean that's even if you had nothing else and of course we've had it rented the whole time and it cash flows really well because of the low basis in it and Uh, We've even been able to take a loan against it for more than we had in it. So effectively we have an infinite return now, right? So we've got our money out and we've used that to buy something else.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And you're right. I mean, I remember like, so I'm from the Northeast. I don't know much about Michigan, but I've heard of countless times on podcasts and everything, like, you know, don't touch Detroit. Right. And I think, uh, I think like the bigger pockets podcast. Oh, like, they were, yeah, they yeah, were. I mean,
1: Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Back then, you know, this is back when Josh was still on there and he was mm-hmm. like, every episode he would mock Detroit. It seemed like and <laughs> every time he did, I was like, all right, more money for me because less competition, right? Exactly. It's an inefficiency in the market. And, uh, And so it was, it was really good. I mean, it worked out really well for us. Uh, We just, we had to get creative though. I mean, I didn't have any credit and I didn't have that much cash. I didn't have to buy the first deal. And then the second deal, my partner actually loaned me um, half of the, my half of the money. So we, we bought a second property in the same complex and he was like, Hey, it's in the same complex. It's around the same price. It's going to work out really well. And I was like, well, I'm out of money. I just gave you all my money. Like, I mean, not literally to him, but, and he was kind enough to finance me in at that time for the second one. And, uh, since repaid him that as well, uh, and still own that one. And that was really the foundation. That's where we started with these two, uh, essentially paid off condos. And then we started uh, having to get even more creative because he was running out of money too. He's like picking up cash and deals like crazy, but, um, you know, you can still only buy so much of that. Yeah. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of financing options in 2011 and 12 uh, for that kind of property, so we started uh, we we started doing some private money stuff, uh, and we just just kept buying. We just and we would, whenever we could, we would roll you know any kind of gains into the next thing. So we would flip some houses, take the money, use it to buy something else, and and that that really formed the basis for the the portfolio. Yeah, that's and, great. And that's what I did until I quit working. I mean, I told you seven years later I quit working, um, and we just we ended up with. I don't know. It was around like 40 or 50 single families at that point. So, I mean, it was a fair amount, but it wasn't, it was enough to pay our bills about, (laughs) you know, it wasn't enough to get rich on, Uh, but we could kind of live okay uh, if we didn't want to like travel and do kinds of fun things. But I figured, and I knew the whole time that if, if I could get out of work, I would have more time to focus on real estate. If I had more time to focus on real estate, I'd figure out a way to make more money. And I told that to my wife and she said, uh, okay, if you're sure, <laughs> and it's worked out. So it's it was the right call, but you know, it was a risk. I think that's another um life lesson, right? If you don't take big steps, you don't get to the big rewards. So
0: exactly. Yeah, you have to make that that big step, right? Um and, and I you know, just to make a comment too about about Detroit, right? And and looking at other markets, right? Because for me, right, I don't I don't know much about Detroit. I I've just heard passing comments from podcast host about the market right so i don't know i don't know much about it but you know i think it's important too to to make the comment just in general where if if you're an investor in you know let's say you know you live in florida right and you hear bad things about detroit that 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 doesn't mean it's a bad market for the people that are investing there because i think that's a misconception and i think it relates to what you were saying right where you have less competition there if you're really familiar with your local market maybe it's considered a poor market by someone who invests in another market, they consider to be better, but that doesn't mean you can't make money there, especially if you're local and you have some competitive advantage. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, I would have a hard time investing in the, the Northeast where you invest. Cause I don't, I don't know the market. Yeah. I would need a partner on the ground, even in Detroit. Frankly, I don't know the market that well. I have a partner, long term time friend went to law school with him. You know, he has a property management company there. He has lots of property up there. If it wasn't for that, Uh, it would be hard for me to have invested in Detroit. Now, I have more knowledge about Detroit than probably you do because I've been up there a bunch of times, but I'm not even from that side of the state. I lived, you know, 300 miles or 250 miles away from there. Um, So it wasn't wasn't like it really in my original plans to invest there. It just was opportunistic, had the opportunity, um, and it sounded right. Uh, did the due diligence, had the relationship, you know, all that kind of stuff that you need if you're going to invest out of state. Cause remember when I bought that first property, I was already living in Tennessee. So, you know, yeah. I'm investing 500 miles away. I mean, I might as well be investing in Vegas or, you know, or somewhere on the East coast. I mean, it didn't, it would be the same thing as far as productivity wise. Uh, and that, that, that was an important part of it. Uh, it wasn't until after I got out of working that I started buying stuff locally in Chattanooga and in the surrounding areas because I didn't have time to do do it. You know, I mean, I needed to learn this market and, you know, living here helps you learn it, but there's more to a market than just, you know, knowing where the grocery stores are.
0: Yeah, so. absolutely. And you know, maybe it's not your, you weren't familiar, but you had a trusted partner that you could work with who was very familiar and that, and then that, you know, can almost take the place of your knowledge if you're going to be working together and you know yeah, that he's, I mean, he's proficient in there. Yeah.
1: And that's why I was saying about earlier when we're talking about the passivity scale, there's this, this, element of understanding due diligence is also understanding the people you're working with. You need to vet your attorneys. You need to vet your bankers. You need to vet your realtors, your title companies, anybody that you're working with on your team, uh, whether they're a partner or not, you better understand um, who they are. And you have to have a certain level of trust with that person because uh, they all have access to information that can harm you or help you depending on how they utilize it.
0: Exactly. So, why don't we uh, let's let's continue moving forward then. Uh, maybe after you lift or, uh, left or left um, the your job with the trucking company there, and you decided sure. to go full time in real estate. So, you mentioned w- was that the point in time where you had that forty fifty single family homes, or was your portfolio yeah, that's, a little bit?
1: That's around where we were at that time. It might have been a little bit more. I I don't. <laughs> Weirdly, at that time, i didn't pay that much attention to how many units I have mm-hmm. uh, because I didn't rely on the cash at all right until I quit working. I never took money out of real estate that's another thing that's I think important to understand is you're going to grow a lot faster if you don't try to get cash flow right away like yeah. we had cash flow, but you know if you had ten thousand dollars a month coming in and you could buy a property in Detroit for uh, you know, thirty thousand dollars. You could take the ten thousand a month and live on it, and you can live pretty good in most markets on ten thousand a month. Or you could not take it for three months and have another house. Right. And then you have $10,800 or whatever a month coming in. And so that's what we were doing. We were just like, we're not going to take the cash. We're going to let everything accumulate. We're going to reinvest everything. Um, and we did that for a long time. Uh, and then when I got my severance, I thought, okay, I'm good for the next six months or so. And I have to figure out how to make money. And I didn't feel like I had any money coming in because we'd never taken any of it. Right. Um, And so because we were constantly reinvesting and we're doing a little buy and selling and stuff, the number is around 50, right? It could have been 40 units, it could have been 60. It was in that range. Um, But yeah, so I quit working um, and I thought, well, I'll just call up my partner and tell him, hey, I don't want to reinvest anymore. I'm just going to take my cash flow. Uh, And then I thought, you know, maybe I'm going to try to make money somewhere else. So I went and got my real estate license, thought about going to practice law, you know, I'm still licensed, I'm licensed in Michigan and Tennessee. uh, But I I haven't practiced law in a long time. And I I didn't want to do that. Um, So I thought about different ways to produce income. And, uh, and one of those things was like, well, maybe I'll try flipping some stuff myself, right? Like, I'll just, I'll take my severance and I'll go buy a, a beat up old property and I'll fix it up and then I'll sell it and then I'll have some more cash and I'll just keep doing that to generate income, kind of generate some active income that way. Um, And I started to do that. And then I got really interested in multifamily right? So I bought a duplex first and somebody had crashed through the wall of the duplex wow. with a truck. So it had like literally a hole in the duplex, like a, in the masonry, <laughs> um, you know, and there were squatters living in that side cause they could just climb through the wall to get into the property. I mean, that's the kind of property it was, it wasn't in a bad area, but it was like a really bad property and I saw a lot of potential. So I bought that, uh, actually with my dad, we split it at 50, 50, fixed it up. Um, And then we refinanced it and got our money out. And I thought, you know, kind of a Burr method sort of thing. And I thought, I'm going to keep looking for bigger deals because I also, at that time, had some time to start reading about multifamily and about how cap rates work and and how you could create real value, right? That's the thing about multifamily is if you can increase your net operating income, you create equity. It's like magic almost. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I'm going to figure out how to buy small multifamily and I'm going to create value that way and then I'm going to try to live off of the cash flow from that which by the way same same rule applies you're better off not to take the cash flow delay taking the cash flow as long as you can and we did end up buying a 12 unit with the money we pulled out of the duplex um, we were able to put a down payment on a 12 unit um, apartment uh, complex and uh, it was you know below market rents, and I was confident of that. Uh, and it wasn't in that bad of shape, it was just managed by a person that had had it for a long time and didn't recognize how much rents had come up. Uh, and so we bought that, and uh, my partner in Michigan got a little bit um, we had been talking about multifamily a bit, and I think he got a little jealous and said, Well, we're gonna buy one up here. So then we uh, bought a 19 unit like a uh, three weeks later, so like we kind of went through that process simultaneously. We went from you know, about forty or fifty units to uh, buying a twelve and a nineteen unit in like a month period of time, which is wow. a huge increase in percentage of 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 stuff. Uh, but both of those have worked out really good. We've since refinanced the twelve unit, pulled out more than our original down payment. It's been a couple of years now since we bought it, um, and we've been able to use that money to you know buy additional real estate. Uh, and then same with the nineteen unit, we're uh, in the process of refinancing now. In fact, we would have been done with the refinance. But for COVID, right? That kind of put a break on on some of those cash out refinances. Although I think we're we're like this close now to getting that done. Um, and then about a I m I'd about four or five months after that, we 1031 to package of single family homes into a 32 unit up in Michigan. So we bought that. Uh, and then we liked that idea. So we kind of put together a deal to buy a 41 unit shortly after that. So so wow, we've just been trying just to ramp up. And yeah, um, and I even, um, I mean, I'm not only buying bigger. I am, um, uh, my partner, in, uh, so I st- started a, a real estate podcast of my own, right, in in, in Chattanooga with a with a local property manager here. Uh, and uh, his name is actually Brian Leverage. Like literally what? his last name is Leverage. That's and, unbelievable. Yeah, it's like the best name <laughs> in all the I had to get into estate. real estate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he really didn't have a choice. In fact, I met him through a banker and the banker said to me, he said, listen, um, Jeff, you've got to meet this guy. He's one of my biggest borrowers. And his last name is leverage. You just have <laughs> to meet him. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so, so Brian and I uh, started the podcast and then we, um, uh, we started looking for some deals together and we got into syndicating a little bit. So we did a few of those. Uh, uh, we did an office building in a strip mall the first year we did those. And then, uh, uh, this year in January, we closed on a 22 unit apartment complex that. Um, it's a different profile. It's a, it's a, it's a condo conversion deal. We're going to convert it to condos. So, so we're uh, in the middle of that process now COVID's kind of <laughs> thrown a wrench into that deal, but it's, yeah. it's still working out. It's cash flowing now, so it can survive forever. You know, that's the good part about that deal. And, uh, and we actually bought a 16 unit, um, sort of in the middle of the COVID thing, we had it under contract and we debated whether we wanted to close or not. And we went, well, it's a good deal last month. It's probably a good deal next month. Uh, I don't know if it was the right choice. I mean, time will tell, but also cash flowing. Um, So, you know, I picked up about 40 or 50 units in Chattanooga this year. um, So I've, I've kind of ramped up local investing because of that. So
0: yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a ton of growth coming from, you know, 40 to 50 single family homes to, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm trying I mean, to do the was, math in my head of, of it's probably oh, yeah, hundred so, plus multifamily units in the last. Yeah.
1: From yeah. 2007 to now we're at, we're, we're just about 200 units of multifamily. So, um, that's and great. that doesn't include like passive or, you know, limited partnership investments. I've done a couple of those. Um, you know, that's a few hundred units, but, but I mean, it's still like, that's, I don't I know a lot of these guys get up and say, Oh, I have a thousand units in my portfolio. And you know, if you own like a quarter percent of a unit, I don't I mean I don't know. Right. <laughs> like I, I have like there's this hundred and five unit up in Louisville that I that, that my partner and I own like two and a half percent of between us, right? I mean, sure, I guess I could say have those units, but I don't really think about them. I don't do anything with them. It's like you know if if there's a passive investment in real estate, that's it, and predictably, because it's passive, it doesn't really produce a very good return so it's,
0: exactly you know, it's one of yeah. those
1: things. there's definitely a sliding scale there on that, so.
0: So, I mean, with all these deals, I mean, how, how are you finding all of these, all of these properties? Um, and, and, and how are you putting them together in terms of, you know, working with investors or, or if sure. you are working with investors?
1: Yeah. So we have done some, um, like I said, we have syndicated a couple of deals where we brought in investors to raise money. Um, we've done this kind of hybrid thing that I really like. We kind of fell into it on, on accident. I, I don't know anyone else that does it this way. It's kind of my secret sauce, if you will. I, I told, um, I was on another podcast uh, not that long ago and i told them how i did it so i guess i have to tell you now too now. everyone in the world <laughs> information's out now,
0: there now yeah
1: yeah it's too late so what we did is um we uh we find a money partner um we keep them active you know they participate in the management of the property and all that stuff to make sure that the, we're not violating the sec rules but we have them we form a company with them we have them loan the company the down payment so we can go to the bank as a uh uh, as a partnership group with money for a 20% down payment, like the 16 unit, uh, we need about $150,000 to buy it. Um, I put $0 in my partner, uh, Brian put $0 in, we have another partner that put up the money, um, that person's, um, you know, gets a 6% return on their money until we refinance and pay them off. And they own 20% of the building of the company that owns the building. Really, yeah. Um, you know, we form that together, um, You got to be careful. I mean, listen, run all this stuff by your legal, make sure you're not violating SEC rules, stuff like that. But it's kind of like a hybrid um, private money slash equity play um, where, you know, if you do it and structure it right and you make sure your partners are uh, participating fully in the deal, uh, then you can, you can really, you can buy something like that where I own 40% of it and I don't have any of my own money in.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I mean, it's so a really
1: great deal. Now, obviously the cash flow is reduced because we have this interest payment uh in yeah. addition to our regular mortgage payment, we have an additional interest payment, but uh it's a value add play. So once we finish the refi, uh you know the the renovations and the raising the rents and stuff. Um and it's just a few blocks from my 12 unit, so I know the market really well. So I know I can um I know I can get the rents up to market and once we do that we'll refinance it probably 18 months from now assuming the world's still functioning normally in 18 months and uh we'll pay off that 150,000 and uh, then then the cash flow will go up and and it's already cash flowing actually even paying the mortgage and paying this interest payment to our investor uh partner um it's still it's still cash flowing so it could be a lot worse and that was with one unit down all month because we couldn't uh turn it because of covid right There's yeah no, no foreclosure or no uh eviction so
0: i mean that's really interesting so it's so it's basically just you, you're you're still sourcing the money as uh as equity rather than debt but you're just offering yeah. some kind of a fixed return until that refinance accords. yeah
1: so i mean the pitch to your um potential investors is Um, you want to invest in real estate. You want to be a little bit less active. Um, we're still going to, you know, we're going to go look at the deal together. We're doing the due diligence together, but, uh, you know, we're going to, manage it once it's up and rolling. We're going to make sure that, you know, you participate in the major decisions, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, you're not going to get a call to fix a toilet. Right. And, and and we're, and we're going to use our expertise. You're going to have your contribution of, of helping us put the deal together. You're going to sign on the bank loans. You're going to do all that kind of stuff. Right. But, um, but at the same time, we're going to handle the management side of it. And um, we're going to make sure that you get You know, it's effectively like a pref rate, but we call it literally interest. We'll have them write a note to the company Mm -hmm. that they're an owner of for $150,000. We'll have an interest payment Uh, in that deal. It's a little over 6%, like six and a quarter interest only. Uh, They get a check first of the month, every month. They don't have to think about it. And whatever's left over that we don't use for CapEx or whatever else uh, is cash flow. And it's divided pro rata. They'll get 20%. We'll get 40% each. Um, and you can structure it however you want. They could have 50% of the deal. They could have 10% of the deal. It's going to depend on the deal going to depend on how much you're putting in personally versus them. Uh, and a lot of it depends on what they're looking for. Um, you can't do that with, um, raising a bunch of money from a whole bunch of different people that want to be passive. Uh, I mean, you can, but that's a syndication, right? Then you're selling securities. Um, you're going to have to uh, make sure you're in compliance with security law. No problem with that, but that adds a different, um, a different uh, cost to it. And it doesn't really work for, you know, sub million dollar deals. I mean, I think you need to be bigger raises in order for that to make sense. If you're going to raise 100,000, uh, you better just do it as a, a you know, private money loan, or, or you need to figure out some other way to structure it. That doesn't require you to go down that, you know, security route.
0: Yeah, exactly, and 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 it's entirely different. It's two different ball games, right? If you're raising money from one individual for, and he's basically the money provider for the deal, yeah. you have so much more flexibility, uh, right? Than right. If you're going I mean, raising money from a lot of people, 100%.
1: but you still have to be careful and make sure they're yeah. active. Because I mean, look at if you raise money from someone and you say, "Hey, Axel, if you give me one hundred fifty thousand dollars, I'm going to go invest it in this deal, and you're going to make all this money." That's a security. There's yeah. no question about that, right? Because the definition, and I'm. Well, I am a lawyer. I'm not a securities lawyer, so please don't think this is legal advice. <laughs> but the definition, as I understand it, is that um, you know, if you're investing money with the intent to make a profit was from the efforts of someone else, then you're not you, you're 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 essentially acting as a you know a passive investor in that deal. Then you're basically buying stock or another type of security, uh, and then you need to have a securities license to sell it, or you have to operate under an exemption. Um, all of those things are possible to do, but they add a lot more cost and, uh, in an effort to avoid that, you might want to make sure that that person's actively involved in the real estate, um, yeah. but you know, still, still hire an attorney and still go through the process and make sure that your attorney understands the difference and can craft the deal in a way that it complies with the law.
0: And, exactly. Yeah, and, and when in doubt, just call an attorney for sure let, <laughs> for for any of this stuff. Yeah.
1: And don't call me because I don't practice law. Right? Like I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just general knowledge here in the securities world. I never studied it other than as an investor and as a deal maker. Uh, I never looked at it from a legal side, like other than what can I do and what can't I do? Right? Yeah. As opposed to like you know how can I figure out a way around the rules? Like I think that's where your lawyer comes in. They figure this stuff out for you. Um, and, and it's not even around the rules. It's navigate the rules in a way that that makes sure you're complying with the rules, whatever they might be for whatever you're doing. And it's easy to run afoul of this. And some attorneys just don't even know about the rules. So make sure this is where it comes back to doing your due diligence. Make sure your attorney is aware of federal securities law, but also local, like state-level securities law, because the rules are different state-to-state uh,
0: state as well. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I, I'm not an expert in that at all, which is why I hire attorneys to do that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's great advice. Um, and, and, uh, for, for all these buildings that you're finding here, I mean, all these, it's especially under the structure that you're mentioning, right. Where you're paying a fixed rate of return, basically you're, you're paying an interest payment for a couple of years and then this investor is getting all their capital back and now they, you know, own a percentage of the deal. That's right. Um, you know, these, those deals are hard to find, right? I mean, to, to yeah. hit those metrics. So, so how are you actually sourcing these deals? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, that deal was actually referred to us by a bank. Uh, the bank had the paper on it. Um, this is where relationships really matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, broker relationships, banking relationships, relationships with other investors. I mean, sometimes someone has a property that they just want to get rid of. The guy who sold us this property, he told his banker, I live in Nashville. This property is 150 miles away from me. It's the only property I still have, uh, you know, in the Chattanooga market and I want to get rid of it. And the banker said, Oh, I think I know the exact person for you. Like these people are buying property in that area. Like I said, I had a property a few, few blocks away. Uh, my other partner, um, had property around the same area as well. And so, you know, they, they came to us and said, Hey, this is, this, why don't you meet this person? They want to, they want to sell. They don't want to pay a real estate commission, whatever it is. Right. Um, and so that's how we found that deal. And it had a lot of hair on it. I mean, there were title issues because they had sold it once before under um, an owner financing arrangement and had to take it back. Um, there were uh, issues with um, other clouds like, like tax lien type clouds on title and it took a long time to get to close and we had to stay really patient. Um, we had it under contract from August to March. Wow. Right. But it was a good deal. And so we just stuck with it. We just kept saying, we're ready when you are like, this is what you need to do. We're going to help you work through the process. Um, and, you know, we, we knew it would work. Um, so if you do find a deal, you got to you got to stick it, stick to it, right. And follow it. Mm-hmm. Um, but finding it is all about relationships. So uh, in Michigan, um, you know, we're on the, the radar of the brokers. You know, once you start closing deals, they, they know that you're able to close the deals. And you, we tell them this is the this is the area we're looking in. This is the, the size deal we're looking for. This is the age of the deal we're looking for. And the, and the more information they have about what you're looking for, the more likely they are to think of you when they see what you're looking for. Um, yeah. and you know, so that's, that's a big part of it. And, and frankly, it, it was a lot easier a couple of years ago to find deals than it is now. Um, and, and you know, but if you keep doing it, you find deals. And you know, I know people that do marketing campaigns to find deals. I know people that you know do cold calling to find deals. All that stuff works. Uh, It depends on your market too. If you're in Detroit or you're in uh, New York City or something, you know, like one of these giant markets, um, I guarantee you, there's a whole bunch of brokers that know all the deals that are there and they're marketing to people. And you, it's hard to compete with them. Like all the even the mom and pop operators are being marketed to by brokers. Uh, If you're in Chattanooga couple hundred thousand people. There's a few brokers here that do a transaction here or there, but um but there's no broker that specializes in multifamily, uh value add multifamily. You know, some markets there's people that they do 10 to 20 units of value add and that's all they do. <laughs> you just gotta get to know that one person and yep. be ready to close. Um it's just it's going to depend on your market it's going to depend on the relationships you make i mean i go to tons of meetups i do stuff like this so people call me i do my own show uh it's just all about getting out there and you know letting people know what you're doing i'm on instagram posting about apartments and looking at apartments you just i'm telling everyone i know i buy apartments so you know what all of your listeners i buy apartments if you've got something metro chattanooga uh you know, within a hundred miles of here. I want to know about it. Give me a call, right? That's, that's that's what you have to do.
0: Yeah, you just have to consistently tell people that, you know, what you're looking for and then even more specifically like what your specific criteria is yeah. and then once someone brings you a deal that hits that you you got to close on it
1: yeah cuz um, otherwise so they're you not bringing you
0: otherwise up. it's they're never going to bring you one again that's right uh, yeah
1: and and if you're not going to close tell them right away you know what this is this isn't what i'm looking for and here's why or yep. even if the reason you're not looking for it is you don't have the cash just say you know what super appreciate you bringing this but i have this other deal i'm closing right now i can't i, I literally can't take on two deals at once Uh, if you see something like that three months from now, I'm, I'm your man, but right now I'm not, just tell them up front and be honest about what's going on. Uh, it adds a tremendous amount of credibility to you. And that's for, especially for brokers, it's all about credibility. They need to believe you are a person that's actively out there buying. And, and the first deal is the hardest. I mean, I always say the biggest mistake I made in real estate was not starting sooner. That's definitely true. Second biggest mistake I made was not starting in multifamily sooner. I think that's true as well. Um, but the that that just simplifies it, right? The the hard part is doing it um, yep. and taking action. Whether it's your first uh, single-family house or whether it's your first apartment complex, it's hard. Uh, and you know, when you have one, uh, it's hard to get the second one. But when you have 30 single families getting one more you you get to be the point like me i don't know i have 40 maybe it's 50 i'm not sure right like yeah. you don't you don't pay even really pay that much attention anymore when you get to a certain level because you know you're used to that but if you feel like you're doing stuff that you're used to it's time to grow again make that big step if you want to. I mean, it's fine if you just want to go live on a beach somewhere. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. I went down to uh, Florida. My dad has a condo down there and I was sitting at the pool reading rich dad, poor dad and thinking I need to figure out a way to do more real estate. So Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't ready to do it. And so, you know, two weeks in I started, uh, you know, reaching out and started thinking about what's next. And, um, and a lot of it too, is it's really great not having a nine to five. So for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about how other people can get to the point where they don't have to do things they don't want to do. Cause I don't, you know, uh, I like doing shows. That's why I'm on your show. Yeah. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here cause I don't really need, I, especially now I really don't need, I could stop doing real estate deals. I could just, the stuff's amortizing. We have some cash in the bank. Um, it'll pay for itself. Uh, and eventually my income will go up because of inflation and, you know, all that stuff. And the fixed debt helps a lot with that. Uh, so I could just say, you know what, I'm good and just go like hang out on a beach. I'm glad I'm not doing it like, you know, say in March and April this year when, you know, there are supply chain issues and, yeah. and you couldn't <laughs> leave the beach if you wanted to. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's really great to have the flexibility to take a month off and go to Africa right? Yeah. And so I want to help people do that. And that's why I got into syndicating deals is why we honestly, why we took money from smaller chunks of money for more investors, even though it's more complicated and there's added layers to it. And it's a lot more work actually for us. It allows us to get into bigger deals, which is fun, but it also provides an outlet for people who really don't have time to do what I do to potentially, um, a lot of our investors are like doctors and lawyers that, um, You know, they want to someday retire, but they're not going to retire from being a, a lawyer because you have to do something with your money. Like you can pile up money, but you can't pile up enough money to live forever.
0: Yeah. Um, You got to put it somewhere and you need to to earn some kind of above average return that's going to pay you on a consistent basis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so we wanted to provide an opportunity for people to earn above average returns or, or, you know, returns above what the bank's going to pay you at the very least. Right. Yeah. Uh, Some kind of risk adjusted return that made sense to them. So that's why we got into that. And then last year, I started thinking about you know not everyone even wants to invest in real estate, so I need to figure out how to help people live the best version of their life, whatever that means to them. So I started another podcast, and we started interviewing people that are doing uh, non-real estate stuff. Right, mm-hmm. um, that's called Last Life Ever. Uh, it's just literally like living, you know, recognizing that you we only live once, and we need to we need to live the best version of our life and. And people can check that out on Facebook. We have a Facebook group with a little over a thousand members now, um, and it's really active and engaged and involved group. And uh, my partner um, on Last Life Ever is a syndication attorney, so there's a lot of real estate people in the in that group. And she'll probably be mad at me for talking about syndications at all because <laughs> she's always like. You're not a syndication attorney. You shouldn't get legal advice. Yeah, don't. So if I said anything wrong, Jillian, I apologize in advance. Yeah. (laughs) Not that she may never watch your show. I don't know. But if she does and you see this and I said something wrong, I'm sorry. I apologize, you know.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Disclaimer and all that.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Again, like I said, I'm not a syndication attorney. So, you know, deal with your lawyers and stuff. But but at the end of the day, I mean, uh, people need to live a good life. And, you know, working a job that you hate and trading five days of your life to have two days off on the weekend it's not a very good trade. Five for two, it's a bad trade. And your worst trade is working 50 weeks a year to get two weeks off. Yeah. It's a terrible trade. Look, if you love your job and you, you get up every morning excited to go to work, it's a great deal for you. Even if you make less money, that's a great deal for you because it's not all about money.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: if you hate getting up in the morning and going to work, then you need to fix that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah, need to have a pretty and simple. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You just need to figure it out. And I'm sure you don't have that problem. Like, like people who are in multifamily tend to be here because they wanted that flexibility. Um, but even if you're not in multifamily, you know, if you're in single family and you don't have to have a nine to five job, or if you're a realtor and you love, you know, just selling real estate and, and you can make your own appointments. And If you want to take a week off, you can do it. Um, just don't make appointments that week. Uh, that's, you know, that there's quality of life issue there. And, and that's true for non-real estate people. I mean, if you're a, a self-help coach or you're a personal trainer, you know, any of that kind of stuff, if you love what you're doing and you can create a, um, a, a, a lifestyle that works for you, that allows you the flexibility that you want and also fulfills you, then it's a great thing. And, and, you know, some of that's got to be giving back with your time, you know, it's, for me, last life ever is one of my major Um, ability places where I can give back. I can donate some time. We don't make money. I mean, there's maybe someday, I mean, I like money, so I hope it makes money someday, right? But it's not designed to make money. We just did a book um, called The Coronavirus Collective. I don't know if you saw that or not, but uh, it's 30 different authors written during the first three weeks of the shutdown. People from all different walks of life, uh, positive, uplifting messages, how they were thinking about Everything that was going on, all the how they were dealing with fear, uncertainty. Um, And we donate 100% of the profits to charity. You know, we just it's on Amazon, people can find it there. Um, And it's great. I mean, it's an amazing book. Um, Some real estate people in there. So, you know, if you're into real estate, you'll hear some people like Frank McKinney, who's, you know, maybe some of your listeners know who he is. He's a best selling real estate author um, who wrote, he he does, uh, he develops these like huge $20 million properties, um, like single family, $20 million properties, right? Like a very specific niche. He considers himself like, he's kind of like the Frank Lloyd Wright of our day. Almost, you know, he makes these beautiful, um, architecturally amazing properties in Southern Florida. And then he takes that money that he makes from that. And he uses it to feed and house homeless people in Haiti. Right. Wow. That's his thing. This is perfectly on Crazy message for story. us. And he talks yeah. about that in the book. Um, you know, so there are people like that in there. Um, but there are also people like we have one author who grew up as a nomad in Mongolia, right? And that's her life experience is completely different than somebody like Frank McKinney or somebody like me or you for that matter, right? Um, and so it's just really, really good stuff to read, and it's been really fantastic to see the response we've gotten from it. So
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um I mean, so, so with that, I mean, what are you looking to do in your business or just, you know, business as it relates to real estate or business sure. as it relates to other things over the next six to 12 months?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I want to keep growing the real estate podcast. I mean, that helps us with fundraising for our deals. I want to continue to grow our deals. Um, I want more units cause I think it's fun. I like putting deals together almost more than any other part of it. I like making the deal. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of where I really enjoy it. Um, And I want to keep living the best version of my life. So I'm trying to find the right balance, always thinking about balance. Uh, um, I have a personal life philosophy where I don't, I don't believe in having bad days. I haven't had a bad day since I was 17. I got diagnosed with leukemia. I still didn't have bad days. I just, I refuse to do it. So I want to share that with as many people as possible. So pursuant to that i just wrote a book i haven't released it yet but i'm gonna release my book at some point so hopefully in the next 12 months my book will be out people can buy that and figure out how they too can not have bad days but you know what like spoiler alert it's not hard it's yeah. um it's just a choice it's actually yeah. harder to have bad days than not people are always like oh man that sounds impossible well the thing is like bad days suck so yeah. don't have them and then your life won't suck <laughs> yeah, that's
0: pretty I mean, simple when you boil it down. Yeah,
1: I, I I, think it's, um, you know, it is a little bit of self-delusion. I mean, bad stuff happens to everyone. Good and bad stuff happens to everyone. And it's about focusing on the good stuff, minimizing the bad, and developing um, sort of a mental fortitude to look for the positive in everything. We had a guest on The Last Life Ever a couple weeks ago for Memorial Day. His son was killed um, in Afghanistan. And he said the trick to life is to embrace the things that, you know, you can't change. Just like, just smile at them, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like focus on changing the things you can, how you react to stuff matters, right? And then smile at everything else. If you can't control it, you know, uh, obviously not happy that his son died in Afghanistan, right? I mean, he's not happy about it, but he recognizes he can't change it. And, Mm -hmm. and, And one of the things he said that for him in the grieving process to like get to the, to the positive side of it was to find three things in every event that ever happens to him that are positive. So if he has something that seems bad on the surface, he needs to think of three things that are positive out of it. And if you can think of three things that are positive results from your son getting killed, then you can pretty much roll with whatever. Like I'm pretty sure that guy doesn't have a lot of bad days. I mean, I don't, I mean, we didn't ask him about that, but, but I know for me, There's a ton of positive that came out of getting leukemia. It forced me to reevaluate my priorities. It forced me to get into real estate earlier than I would have otherwise. I don't know that I ever would have, right? My life is really great now because I had leukemia. If I didn't have leukemia, I would be in a completely different spot. Frankly, last life ever wouldn't exist. Um, My um, real estate podcast, old-fashioned real estate show, wouldn't exist. I'm positive of that. Um, those are positive things for me. And they're positive things for other people too. Um, you know, it's good for my wife. It's good for my family. But it's also good for all the people that I impact through those those outreaches. Uh, and so I love it. I mean, uh, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't wish it on you. Like, I don't want you to get leukemia. But uh, I'm glad I got it. And that's it's hard to get to that point. But if you're constantly minimizing the negative and focusing on the positive, you get there.
0: Yeah, and it's unbelievably important to 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 do it like you're you know you're saying is look for the positives and things and it can be applied to everything throughout life and in real estate too. Like you lose a bunch of money on a real estate deal, you know, look for the positives and the learning you know moments. Yeah, and you're that. gonna and you're it's gonna, gonna happen. lose money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's I inevitable. Mean,
1: yeah, and especially where we are in the market cycle. I mean, there's a lot of risk out there. There's the coronavirus risk. There's the fact that the markets have been up forever. Look, I had Harry Dent on my show um, you know, economic forecaster. Um, he's always predicting doom and gloom. So, you know, we take it with a pinch of salt or whatever, you know, but, um, but I had him on my show last week and, um, he, uh, he thinks that we're going into a depression, right? Like we might be in the, in the, about ready to go into a depression. If that's the case, people are going to lose money. Now you could look at that as a negative and it certainly is, but you can also look at, the fact that you can't control it. And you can say, okay, I'm going to do what I can now to prepare for whatever might come. And I'm going to make sure that I don't have the kinds of problems that other people are going to have. And I'm not, I'm not saying take advantage of people. I'm just saying, be prepared, right? Like make sure that you're not going to end up bankrupt. I mean, I've been there. That's no fun. Didn't let it ruin my day, but I didn't like it either.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, that's the thing. Um, and you can avoid that by having long-term debt on your property right now. Like if people are getting balloon payments typically in the market because they think they can refinance later, they're getting bridge loans, stuff like that. I'd be real careful with that right now yeah. because we don't know what lending is going to look like six months, 12 months, a year from now. Like even the deal that, that I described earlier, the 16 unit where we plan to refinance, we had this conversation with our, our other partner and said, look, it's possible we won't be able to refinance. So we have long-term debt on right? Reasonably priced long-term debt. And then we said, but we'll continue to give your interest as long as we have to, right? Like if we, mm-hmm. but but don't plan for sure. You're getting your money back in 12 months for sure. You're getting your, you know, we're going to refinance and pay you off that, that portion of your equity, um, in 12 months or 18 months, because it might be five years. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just can't predict the market. Um, and I don't think anyone can right now, right now lending is loosening up again. Uh, rates were up for a few days and then they went back down Uh, and they've been down and they're lower than they've almost ever been in our entire investing career. Uh, It's a great time to borrow money, but locking that long-term debt right now, um, you know, and if you're going to have adjustable rate debt, a lot of regional banks, uh, smaller banks will do portfolio lending with, you know, maybe five-year arms. Great, but make sure that when it adjusts, there's a cap on what it can adjust to. Make sure that it doesn't, um, balloon at five years or three years because you just don't know. Yeah. like I can't. I, and frankly, if you have something like a five-year balloon that's coming due two, three years from now, this is a good time to refinance.
0: Yeah, don't exactly. wait until
1: six months before that balloons due. Um, so that's tip number one to avoid a market downturn. Because the thing is, if you bought in two thousand and six and you sold in two thousand and eleven, you got terribly screwed. You lost oh, a yeah. lot of money, right? If you bought in 2006 and you sold in 2019, you made a ton of money, yeah. right? The market's up from 2006. It wasn't up in 2011 though. So if you have long-term debt, it solves the problem, right? The other thing is too, uh, let's say you buy a property for $100,000, you put $20,000 down on it and it cash flows and it goes down to $50,000 in value over the next 10 years uh, or 20 years even, right? So it actually goes down against Real value and inflation over a twenty-year period, but it cash flowed the whole time and it paid for itself. At the end of the twenty years, it's going to cash flow more if you had twenty-year debt on it. Let's say, because um, you'll now have no debt on it and you'll mm-hmm. have a fifty-thousand-dollar asset and you only put twenty thousand in. So, even in a situation where property values go down, if you properly leverage and you have long-term debt, you're gonna—it's very forgiving. That's the yeah. point, and I don't see even in a depression situation properties don't tend to go down over 20 year periods, right? They go down over four, five, six years. The market is slow, but it's not that slow. You bought at the height of the um, property values before the great depression and you sold now, you did really well, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Like If you can hold something for 50, 60, 70 years, uh, it's gonna work out for you. And you can hold it for that long if you leverage appropriately and you cash flow the whole time. So yeah.
0: ton of have great some, points.
1: have some cash on hand. In case you have a reduction in rent or something like that, have conservative cash flow margins, underwrite your deals to make sure that you can survive 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50% reductions in rent. If you have 50% reduction in rent and you break even, then you're probably gonna be okay. Uh, but you know, even then the black swans, right? Global pandemic, and all of a sudden your rent goes to zero, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. there's there's risk in everything. You can't you can't eliminate all risks. Uh, so, you have to eliminate the risk you can and and like you like uh, like my guest on last life ever said, "Smile at the stuff you can 't
0: yeah exactly no and a ton of great points right and it's it 's just you, you have to make the best decisions you can in the moment with the information you have right and and that 's the best sure. that you can do um, and just try and be smart about the decisions you make, given the fact that there might be a little doom and gloom here in a year um, it, it seems to be the consensus, but Listen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to come on and, and chat you know, everything related to your business, your life. Um, you know, shared a lot of great advice, a lot of actionable advice uh, if, if, the listeners want to connect with you outside of the couple of the places that you already mentioned, yeah. uh, where can they do so?
1: I'm really good at self promotion. So the best thing is probably <laughs> look the last life ever group. If it's non real estate related is definitely the best place. Otherwise old fashioned real estate.com is old fashioned, like the drink. So what we do on the, sh- on the YouTube show is we get drunk and talk about real estate. So <laughs> I highly recommend awesome. that because it's super entertaining. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's youtube.com slash old fashioned real estate. And then, uh, also my personal website's just my name, com. So any of those places I'm, I'm not hiding. If you Google me, you'll find me. Gotcha. That's, <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again for taking the time and, um, I'll be sure to link all those, um, you know, your website, uh, and it. Your Instagram, all that stuff, you know, your podcast, I'll link it all in the show notes so people can go in, uh, and just, you know, click on it and get to you. So thanks again for coming on the show, though. It was great.
1: Thanks. I enjoyed it. To the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. See you next time.